John, today's gospel reading, from chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, I am reading from the Revised Standard Version. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of God for the people of God. One of the uh, one of the great gifts that God has given us here at Court Street Church is a number of of retired pastors who have have settled in Flint and, and make their home. Here at Court Street, we've already mentioned uh, Reverend Doug and, and uh, Reverend Ron. Thank you for sharing the gospel reading with us this morning. I could, I could name others. Uh, the, the retired pastors in our congregation have been such a source of wisdom and information and insight and encouragement to me in, in my time here. And uh, every once in a while, we've got to thank them for, for what they do. So I went to a wedding this week. I went, I went to a wedding. The wedding was all the way down in, in North Carolina, which meant that I had to get on an airplane for a quick down and back trip. I, I took an early morning flight out of Bishop, and then I took another early morning flight out of Chicago down to North Carolina. We've already established that I'm not an early morning person. And, and so by the time I got on that airplane in Chicago, I, I just wanted to close my eyes and catch up on a little bit of sleep. I am not what you would call a social flyer. I'm not even a sociable flyer. When, when I get on an airplane, I don't look to strike up conversation with people. I usually just read a book or, or shut my eyes and, and keep to myself. And the one thing that I absolutely never do when I'm traveling on an airplane is tell people, what I do for a living. In, in my experience, when people find out that they're sitting next to a Methodist pastor on, on an airplane, they usually respond in one of two ways. Some people get really awkward and quiet, and, and then you're stuck in an airplane for however many hours it takes next to somebody who is clearly not, not happy about being stuck next to a Methodist pastor. The other thing 
that happens sometimes is that people get really awkward and talkative. Uh, some people, when they find out that you're a pastor, they just start talking and they don't stop until the plane touches the ground. They want you, they want you to hear their confession and then they tell you their life story and there's no, there's no polite or gracious way to get out of that conversation when you're strapped in an airplane next to each other. So I don't usually tell people on an airplane what I, what I do for a living. This week as I was flying out of Chicago, all I really wanted to do was was close my eyes and keep to myself, but the ladies sitting next to me, they had other plans. So I got seated next to a couple of retired nurses who were were going down to North Carolina to, to visit a friend. And I kid you not, the minute I sat down and buckled in to my seat, they swiveled to face me, and then one of the ladies said, So, let's see if I can guess what you do for a living. And then the other lady, she said, well, he kind of looks like a rabbi, which, which, is, which was actually, that was, that was a pretty good guess. They started off hot, but then they kind of wandered into the weeds a bit. They said, well, do you, do you work with computers? Are you some sort of an engineer? And it took them quite a while to circle on back to, to Methodist pastor. And finally, they arrived at Methodist pastor. And then when they discovered I was a Methodist pastor, the woman seated across the aisle, leaned all the way over across the aisle and said, did I hear you say that you're a Methodist pastor? My grandfather was a Methodist. Methodist pastor, and it didn't take long before the whole plane knew that there was a Methodist pastor <laughs> on board the airplane, and there was, there was a quiet moment as everybody sort of processed the fact that there was a pastor on board, and I waited in that quiet moment to see what kind of awkward people were, were going to be, and then I kid you not, the, the woman seated two seats over from me turned to face me, and she said, so there are two things I need to confess, and then it was all, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, it's been 17 years since my last confession, and I tried to tell her that I'm not Catholic and you don't need to call me Father and we Methodists don't do confession that way. But she wasn't listening. She had things that, that she needed to get off of her chest. And she did. She made her confession. I'm not going to tell you what she said because, you know, confession is a, a confidential thing. If you make a confession to me, that's between us and God and all the other people on the airplane. Right? <laughs> And then when she had finished with, with, you know, making her confession, the other woman, the one who was seated next to me, she turned to me and started telling me her life story. She, she said, well, I'm a grandmother. I've got, I've got a grandson. And then she pulled out her phone and started showing me pictures of her, her two-year-old grandson. And then she started telling me the whole story. She said, a year ago, she said, my, my daughter went through a really messy and difficult divorce. And, and suddenly my daughter and my grandson, they, they found themselves without a place to live. And, and they didn't have any savings to fall back on and so they came they came to live with me and I said well how is that going having your your two-year-old grandson living with you and she said oh she said I love it she said it has been it has been the most wonderful year she said I am so enjoying getting to be a, a grandmother every day she said my daughter is a special education teacher and so when she gets home at the end of the day she is usually just drained and exhausted and she just doesn't have a lot of energy to put in as a single mom to put into a two-year-old she just has a hard time being present with him for a while at the end of the day she said that's where grandma comes in she said, now that I'm retired, I got all the time in the world to give to my grandson. She said, I can give him my complete and undivided attention. And so I sit with him and I read stories to him and I answer all of his endless questions and I give him snuggles when he needs snuggles. She said, it has been, it has been the most wonderful year. I have so enjoyed having them. She said, you know, I'm at a point in my life now where, where after years of working and after years of trying to get ahead, suddenly I find that I have more space than I need and I have more 
more money than I will ever need, and I'm just so glad that I've got somebody to share it with now. She said, I am so grateful that when my people needed help, I was in a position. I was in a position to lend them a hand and take them in. And by the time this woman finished telling me her life story, I was, I have to tell you, I was rethinking my philosophy of not talking to people on airplanes. Because this woman, in this woman seated next to me on, on the airplane, I had a living, breathing example of everything I was planning on telling you this Sunday morning anyhow, right? So, so all of these last few weeks, we've been having this conversation. We've been giving thanks and celebrating the, the gray-haired members of, of God's church family. You know, when, when we started this journey, I said to you, I've got one goal for this sermon series. And my goal is that when we get to the end of the sermon series, you will walk into church on Sunday morning and look around and say, isn't it wonderful to see so much gray hair? As a bonus, wouldn't it be wonderful if maybe you got up on, on, on in the morning and looked in the mirror and said, isn't it wonderful to see to see so much gray hair? Some of us, some of us, you know, need to learn to celebrate the gray hair on top of our heads and, and growing out of the bottom of our faces, right? We we've been celebrating the gifts that gray-haired people can give these these last few weeks. And and this morning I want to recognize the fact that one of the wonderful things about gray-haired people is that they often have resources, they have time, they have faith, they have money to give that younger generations often don't have. Every church that I've ever served as a pastor, someone comes up to me not long after I arrive and they say, Pastor, we really hope that you're going to be able to go out and find some young people and bring young people into the church. When people say that to me, I've got a follow-up question I always ask, which is, why do you say that? Why do you, why do you want me to go out and find young people and, and help them come into the church? And, and often what people will say to me is, well... You know, there's not as much money in the offering plate as we would like, and it's getting really hard to get people to serve on the committees. And, and we just think that if you could go out and find some new, energetic young people, that would really breathe some new life into the congregation, and everything would get a little bit easier. And I say, are you crazy? Say, are we talking about the same young people? Have you met the young people you want me to go out and invite into the church? Are we talking about the same young people who just accumulated tens of thousands of dollars in educational debt and then graduated into a stagnant job market where they had to take the first job that would offer them health insurance? Are we talking about the same young people who work long and irregular hours, and when they're not working long and irregular hours, they're trying to get their kids from this practice to that event, to that game, to that rehearsal? Are we talking about those same young people? It's good to share the good news of God's love with younger generations. Jesus commands us to share the good news of God's love with children and young people and young adults. But if we think that sharing the good news of God's love with children and young people and young adults is going to lead to a whole bunch of young people walking into church one day and dropping tithes into the offering plate and volunteering to chair all of our committees, then we are in for a a world of disappointment because the truth is experience tells us, 2,000 years of experience tells us that that kind of giving, that kind of faith, That kind of leadership and service and generosity almost always comes from the elders of the church. That kind of leadership and service almost always comes from the gray-haired members of God's church family who have reached a point in their lives where they have time to give and more money than they're ever going to need. People who have been shaped by a lifetime of worship and have learned the difference between things that have earthly value and things that have eternal value. People, People like Joseph of Arimathea. So in this morning's gospel reading, we have a story about this man, Joseph of Arimathea. 
We don't really know very much about Joseph of Arimathea. There are lots of stories and legends about, about Joseph of Arimathea. In the Middle Ages, people made up all sorts of tall tales and, and stories about Joseph of Arimathea. You know, people said that he was the uncle of Jesus. People said that as, as Jesus was dying on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea caught the blood that was pouring out of his side in a cup that became the Holy Grail. And there were stories about how he, he took the Holy Grail to England and he brought the Christian faith to, to Great Britain. There are lots of stories and legends about Joseph of Arimathea, but almost all of them are just stories that were made up by people who were trying to promote tourism in the United Kingdom or, or trying to sell some kind of a cheesy and theologically dubious novel, right? So, so there's lots of stories about Joseph of Arimathea, but the truth is we really don't know very much about the real Joseph of Arimathea. You know, the Bible only tells us three things about this man, Joseph. The first thing we know about Joseph is that he is, he is an important and respected community leader in the city of Jerusalem. The second thing we know about Joseph is that he is a wealthy man. And the third thing we know about Joseph is that unlike almost all of the other wealthy community leaders in the city of Jerusalem, Joseph believed in Jesus. He met Jesus, encountered Jesus, heard the preaching of Jesus, and he was moved and compelled by the message of Jesus to the point where he said, I am going to give, I am going to support your ministry. Did you ever wonder where Jesus found the money that enabled him to just wander around from town to town for three years, sharing God's love with everybody he met? Jesus didn't hold down a regular job. He wasn't cashing a paycheck. And we know that Jesus didn't have his own money to fall back on. He wasn't independently wealthy. Jesus came from a, a hard scrabble, blue collar, always working, never quite getting ahead kind of a background. He didn't have his own, his own wealth to fund his ministry. And Jesus wasn't the only one who was doing this work, traveling from place to place. Jesus had 12 guys, the 12 disciples, who traveled everywhere with him, and they weren't working either. And there were more people, at least 70 people, maybe as many as 200 other people who traveled with Jesus everywhere he went. None of them were cashing a paycheck. All of them needed to eat every single day. And so the question is, where did Jesus find the money to buy lunch for 200 people every single day for, for three years? The answer is that there were a small handful full of wealthy, older people who were compelled and convicted by the preaching and the message and the person of Jesus. People like Joseph of Arimathea were moved, were moved to give to support the ministry of Jesus. And the remarkable thing about Joseph is that he kept on giving to the ministry and the work of Jesus all the way up to the very end. All right, so in this morning's gospel reading, we have this story. Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. Almost all of his other followers have run away because they're afraid of the authorities. Almost everyone who followed him for all of those three years have, have gone and abandoned and betrayed Jesus. There's just a handful of women gathered at the foot of the cross. And if we look off to the side, just, just off to the side, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we see Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is there witnessing the death of Jesus. I don't know why Joseph was there when so many other people were afraid. Maybe Joseph is one of those people who, who got later in life and said, you know what, I've only got a little bit of time left on earth anyway. What's the worst they can do to me? And so he decided he was going to go and be with Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea watches as Jesus dies on the cross. And then he watches as the women who love Jesus take his body down 
And he watches as these women hold the body of Jesus and they realize that they don't know what they're going to do with it. They don't know what happens next. They need to put this body somewhere. They need to lay Jesus to rest somewhere, but they don't have a cemetery plot and they don't have money to buy a tomb. And so they become distressed and, and distraught and brokenhearted as they cradle the body of Jesus in their arms. Joseph watches these women's hearts break and one last time he is moved to generosity. Joseph steps forward and he says to the women, go ahead and put him in my tomb. Now, Joseph is, is old enough that he's planning for his own funeral. He's planning for the end of his life. And he has just had carved out of the stone of a nearby hill. He's just had a brand new tomb carved for himself. The kind of tomb that a wealthy Jewish person would have back in those days. Joseph steps up to the women and he says, go ahead and put Jesus in my tomb. Come along with me. I'll, I'll show you where it is. And they lay Jesus to rest in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They put him on a, a stone slab there in the tomb. They seal up the tomb with a great big stone and they leave. And then two days later, Jesus stands up there in the tomb. The stone rolls away and Jesus walks out of the tomb. And we don't know this for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but I like to think, I like to believe that at some point after that, maybe days later, maybe months later, maybe a couple of years later, I like to believe that at some point after that, they took the body of Joseph of Arimathea and laid it in that same tomb. He was one of the few people in all of human history who got to use a used tomb. He got laid in that tomb on the same stone slab where they had laid the body of Jesus. I like to think that they laid him there, that he died believing in his bones all the way up to his final breath, that one day he would get up and walk out of that tomb the same way that Jesus did. All of my years of ministry and experience, I now have come to believe that God always provides us with the resources we need to do the work that God has called us to do. And over and over again in my years of ministry, I have discovered that the, the resources we need are, are often, usually, almost always given by the gray-haired, faithful elders of the church. The gifts that make the ministry of Jesus happen still today are given by people who have got to a point in their lives where they realize they have more money than they're ever going to need to use on themselves. They have been shaped by a lifetime of worship. They have learned the difference between things that have earthly value and things that have eternal value. The, the ministry of the church still to this day is made possible by people like that, that nurse on the plane and Doug Mercer in the pew over there and Joseph of Arimathea. And for that reason, I give thanks. I give thanks for all of the gray-haired, faithful, generous members of the church. And my prayer, my prayer is that one day I will be able to match them in faithfulness and generosity. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for people like Joseph who from the very beginning made the ministry of Jesus possible. God, we give you thanks for all of those saints through the ages who have let go of the things of this world before this world let go of them. God, we pray that you would each day cause us to grow in faithfulness, cause us to grow in faith and generosity until one day we wake up and look in the mirror and discover that we are the gray-haired saints the church has been waiting for. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.